Well, thanks, Richard, and uh, thanks for coming along this morning as we continue the story of the life of Joseph. We're looking at chapters 42, 43, and 44 of Genesis this morning. We'll not take time to read all of them, otherwise it'd only be time to close in prayer. But let's read uh, particularly from chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. The story is that Joseph has been put in charge of Egypt. Uh, there were seven years of bumper crops and Joseph uh, saved up vast amounts of grain because there were then seven years of famine. So first one, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. He said to them, they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And down to verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all in custody, uh, together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are, uh, where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there becomes a reckoning for his blood. 
They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And finally, just down to the end of verse 28, when the brothers ask, what is this that God has done to us? Last week, William led us through the story of how Joseph suddenly rose to become the ruler of the world's superpower in Egypt at the age of only 30. Now, the next three chapters tell the rather complicated sequence of comings and goings of Joseph's brothers between their home in Canaan and Joseph's headquarters in Egypt. Joseph, by this stage, would have been, I would say, at least 38 years old, uh, maybe more. And it was over 20 years since his brothers had sold him as a slave. More than half his life had been spent in Egypt. So let's work our way through the various trips which the brothers made to discover Joseph's strategy with his brothers and what he was trying to achieve. As we try to interpret Joseph's intentions, we need to remember two important things about Joseph. Firstly, Joseph was highly intelligent. You don't become the ruler and governor of the world's superpower by the age of 30 without having phenomenal ability and managerial genius, as William put it last week. Everything Joseph did in these chapters with his brothers, he did for a very good reason. And secondly, Joseph was a moral and a spiritual man. He still trusted God. He was morally upright. The, all the pain that he experienced from his brothers throughout the first part of his life had been forgotten. When his first son was born, Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Joseph wasn't seething with resentment. He had moved on. He probably never expected to see his family ever again. God had given him a huge mission in Egypt, and he was focused on doing that well. So let's come then to the first journey which uh, Jacob's sons uh, made. Jacob lived in Canaan with his 11 sons and their families. And after nearly a year of famine, their own food supply was exhausted. And so Jacob sent 10 of his sons to Egypt. Benjamin was Joseph's full brother, and Benjamin seems to have replaced Joseph as Jacob's favorite son. Jacob refused to let Benjamin go with his brothers. So the 10 brothers then set off for Egypt. When they arrived, they met Joseph, but didn't recognize him. Joseph recognized them at once. And when he saw them bowing down to him, in the context of him having lots of grain, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had had about them many years ago, particularly the dream about the sheaves of grain and them bowing down to Joseph's sheaf 
was very, a very strong reminder of Joseph and his position at this moment in time. But when he remembered his dream, that was a reminder to Joseph that God had always had a plan and a role for Joseph with his brothers. He had never known what that was. He had forgotten about it. But now he was reminded that God had a particular role for Joseph with his brothers. Joseph had hoped to forget all about them. But now he knew he had a job to do, a God-given job to do with his brothers. So he immediately formulated a plan. As part of that plan, Joseph decided now was not the time to reveal his identity. Instead, he spoke aggressively to them and accused them of being spies and had them put in prison. Then he seemed to relent a little. He released them and let them go home with food for their families, but with two strict conditions. On the context of proving that they were uh, not spies, the brothers were going to be forced to return to Canaan and then to bring their brother Benjamin, their last remaining brother, back to Egypt. Now, this was their brother's worst nightmare. There was no way their father would let Benjamin come to Egypt, they were sure. Joseph was carefully pushing his brothers to feel that everything in life was against them. Now, how do people react when they feel that life and the whole world is against them? The first reaction of Joseph's brothers came from their conscience, completely unprompted. Even after more than 20 years, these hard, embittered men still had a conscience about what they did to Joseph. They immediately remembered what they had done and how they had ignored his cries. They felt guilty about it. They actually say they were guilty of it. For 20 years or more, they had laughed off their guilt. But now Joseph had stirred up their conscience and their conscience immediately condemned them. Did that lead them to repent of what they had done? Repenting isn't the same as feeling guilty. Did it bring them back to God? Well, it seems not. It's interesting to see how they reacted to this unwelcome reminder of their earlier sins. When things continued to go badly for them, we read that question that they asked themselves in verse 28. What is this that God has done to us? Their conscience had already told them that their trouble was their own fault. They pretended not to know their own answer to their question. Instead, they started to blame God and said, God has done this to us. People are the same the world over. Sometimes when things go wrong in our lives, our conscience responds instinctively and points us immediately to something that we've done wrong in the past. When that happens, we have a choice. We can either repent before God and come back to God, 
or we can resist the implications of our conscience and put up arguments for why we should not face up to God. I remember one young guy who frequented our church a number of years ago who claimed to be a Christian, but then he got his girlfriend pregnant. And instead of repenting, within a few months, he was openly questioning whether or not God existed. Eventually, he turned completely against Christianity. He came out with all the old arguments, trying to prove, firstly, that God didn't exist, and secondly, even though he didn't exist, God was unfair. He was trying to suppress his conscience. And he blamed Christians for putting him off Christianity. All his filibustering could be traced back to his refusal to repent when his conscience accused him about his immorality. I wonder if you've ever had a time when something has triggered your conscience. Perhaps something you did 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago. You've tried to suppress it, but every now and then it resurfaces. We should listen to our conscience. It's a sign that God is speaking to us. How we react is important. It can either bring us back to God humbly in repentance, or it can harden us against God. The second condition which Joseph imposed on his brothers was that Simeon had to remain in Egypt as a hostage. Now, it's interesting to ask, why did Joseph select Simeon? There's only one incident really recounted uh, in Joseph's youth about his brothers, where the brothers are named, and this one incident includes Simeon. Simeon was one of the least attractive of the 11 brothers. He had a brutal, violent streak in him. When Joseph had been a boy, Simeon and his younger brother Levi had brutally massacred all the men of a town where their sister had been abused. It's significant that Simeon never did anything on his own. It was always when he was with someone else. Even his descendants, the tribe of Simeon, when they had to conquer their inheritance, they didn't do it on their own. They teamed up with the tribe of Judah. Simeon reminds me of this sort of person who in a group is confident, strong, and even aggressive. But on their own, they feel vulnerable and they're afraid that their inner weakness might be exposed. I think Joseph had remembered about Simeon. He knew his weakness. He knew that if Simeon's sinfulness was to be dealt with, Simeon had to be isolated from the rest of his brothers and particularly from his younger brother, Levi. And so Joseph isolated Simeon uh, as part of his work in Simeon to bring him to repentance, at least to try to work with his character. And so in Joseph's apparent harsh treatment of his brothers, he was working with them intelligently and spiritually. Firstly, to bring them to repentance. It was not only what they had done to Joseph that needed repentance. They needed to repent of their individual sinfulness, which had always been part of their character. And that leads us to the next big question 
about Joseph's strategy. Why did he demand that they take Benjamin away from his father and bring him to Egypt? I mean, Joseph knew what grief that would cause Jacob. So why did he do that? When Joseph was a boy, he was his father's favorite, not by Joseph's choice, but because Joseph was the son of Rachel, who had always been the love of Jacob's life. Joseph did not revel in that position, quite the opposite. He understood the envy and hatred which his father's favoritism was inspiring in his other brothers. Joseph was a victim of his father's favoritism. It was a fault in Jacob's character. Favoritism within a family is a very destructive thing. Some of you have probably been brought up in one-child families where you don't have brothers or sisters and maybe you haven't observed this uh, happening so much. But often the person who suffers the most is the favorite, especially if they are a good and godly person. The New Testament equivalent of Jacob in, uh, is James, the Lord's brother who wrote the letter of James. Jacob and James are actually the same name. If you know your history, the Jacobites in Scotland were actually the followers of King James of Scotland. And just as Jacob at the end of Genesis blesses his 12 sons, so too James, when he is writing his letter, he writes it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the second chapter of that letter, James makes an impassioned plea. My brothers, he says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. The Jacob of the New Testament had seen the flaws of his Old Testament ancestor and was aware of the intense trouble that brought for all members of the family. The fact that Jacob, that, sorry, the fact that Joseph had seen that Benjamin had not been allowed to come with the other 10 brothers, that was evidence to Joseph that Jacob had simply transferred his favoritism to Benjamin. He saw that his father was still perpetuating that flaw in his character. And Joseph felt he had a duty to address this fault in his father's character. How could he do something about that from a distance? Perhaps he remembered the story that his grandfather Isaac had told him about his great-grandfather Abraham. How God had purified Abraham's faith by asking him to take his son whom he loved and lay him on the altar and offer him to God. Part of what God was doing in Abraham was developing and changing and fixing something in his character. And as Joseph remembered that story and of how God had developed his great-grandfather Abraham, Joseph saw a plan for how he might be able to help Jacob overcome the flaw in his 
character and to shake him out of his favoritism. So Joseph required Jacob to be prepared to sacrifice his beloved son Benjamin for the sake of the rest of the wider family circle. And he was going to do that by allowing Benjamin to come to Egypt with his brothers. Jacob knew, sorry, Joseph knew this would be hard for Jacob, but he knew it could be transformative for him. He knew how that God could fix something that was lacking in Jacob's character. And so the nine brothers returned to Canaan, leaving Simeon behind, but he gave them food to last them for a year. He showed them kindness too in an unseen way by returning their money with them and even giving them extra food for their donkeys on the way back. But next year, their food had run out. I get the impression Jacob wasn't that keen, really, to see Simeon rescued and brought home. He waited practically a whole year before he said to his brothers, look, we have run out of food. If we don't do something, we're going to die. You've got to go back to Egypt. His brothers reminded him, but the man said, if we come back, we must bring back Benjamin. Jacob was reluctant to do that. But as he looked at his grandchildren starving and in, risk, in danger even of dying, he eventually handed Benjamin over to the, the care of his brothers. It was Judah who took personal responsibility for whatever happened to Benjamin. And so the 10 brothers headed back to Egypt, Benjamin and the, previous, the other nine. And when they arrived and met Joseph, and when Joseph saw Benjamin, he was overcome with emotion. He withdrew from them, and we, we, we read that he wept intensely. Part of it was that Joseph and Benjamin had been very close as boys. Benjamin had never known his mother, lovely mother, Rachel, because she had died while giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin was the only link that Joseph had with his mother. Joseph had probably been something like a mother to Benjamin in his early years. So the emotion which Joseph felt when he met Benjamin again must have been intense. But even more than that, Joseph saw Benjamin's presence in Egypt as evidence that his father Jacob had made progress. He saw that his father had at last put the rest of his family before Jacob's personal favoritism. And that was another cause of Joseph's emotion. But Joseph still does not reveal his identity. His mission is not complete. There was one more huge objective which Joseph had to achieve in his brothers before he revealed who he was. There was still one last part of his plan which he had to carry out. And so Joseph sent all 11 brothers back home with plenty of food. As his brothers left, I can imagine them thinking, well, I'm glad all that's over. Everything has worked out well in the end. We'll soon be home with Benjamin safe and sound. But Joseph had arranged one last twist in the plot. He had deliberately planted an expensive cup in Benjamin's sack 
which would make it look as though Benjamin had stolen it from Joseph. Joseph arranged for it to be discovered and Benjamin was arrested. And all the brothers hurried back to, Benjamin, back to Egypt with Benjamin, absolutely distraught. When they met Joseph again, Joseph put into operation the last part of his plan. He said, Benjamin must remain here permanently as my slave. How poignant that must have been for Joseph to say that. He said, but the other 10, the, the other 10 are free to return home. This is perfectly just. But for Judah, who had promised his father that he would take responsibility for Benjamin, the thought of facing his father with the news that Benjamin had been lost, on top of the earlier loss of Joseph, that broke something in Judah. Here are the last words which Judah spoke to Joseph just before Joseph broke down and revealed his identity. It's the last two verses of chapter 44. Now then, Judas says as he pleads with Joseph, please let your servant, meaning himself, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? And then he ends with this. Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. It was this last sentence which caused Joseph to break down. This was what Joseph had been waiting for all along when Judah said, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Perhaps for the first time in his life, Judah was showing some concern and respect for his father. He was putting his father's concerns before his own. And to Joseph, this was the first glimmer of love that he had ever seen among his brothers for their father. That was what Joseph had been working towards in his complicated plan. Joseph wasn't primarily concerned about what they had done to Joseph. Joseph was concerned about what they had done to their father and how they had treated their father. And Joseph's goal was primarily to get his brothers to show some love for their father. And when he saw the first glimmer of this love and respect, Joseph's mission was accomplished. That was the moment he revealed his identity to his brothers. And we hear the outcome of that next week. But let's just note that Joseph's ultimate loyalty and uh, duty was always to his father, even though he hadn't seen him or heard from him for over 20 years. He also saw it as his duty to bring his brothers to the point of showing even a fraction of loyalty to their father too. They never really repented of what they had done to Joseph. But that wasn't Joseph's primary aim. Joseph at least had brought about something of a reconciliation between Joseph's brothers and their father. In Joseph's eyes, that was even more important. I'd like to finish by commenting on just two aspects of this part of Joseph's story. The first part is about Joseph's dreams and the correct interpretation of them. 
When Joseph decided to tell his dreams to his brothers and the second one to his father, he knew how they would react. An intelligent teenager who just a few years later would be ruling the world's superpower understood only too well how his brothers would hate him even more because he was telling them this dream. But he felt they needed to know. They needed to know that what was going to happen, whatever it was, was from God and not simply through Joseph's intelligence and not through luck. When we, the, they asked that later question, which we read earlier, what is this that God has done to us? I'm sure Joseph was hoping that they would remember the dream and would remember that God had a plan behold a thing, behind the whole thing. But it's interesting to read earlier in the chapters how Joseph's brothers misinterpreted the dream. And they misinterpreted it in an interesting way. Do you remember what they said to Joseph when he told their dream? He said, oh, are you going to rule over us? Are you going to lord it over us and exercise power over us? They automatically assumed that their bowing down to Joseph meant that Joseph would wield authority over them. They had a completely wrong concept of power and authority and of what it was for. But when Joseph eventually remembered the same dream as his brothers bowed down to him, bowed down to him Joseph made no attempt to control them, to uh, rule over them, and to wield power over them. The dream Joseph told Joseph that his role was to be responsible for his brothers. He was responsible for their spiritual development, for trying to bring them to repentance and to restore their relationship with his father. That was how Joseph interpreted the dream when he remembered them. And that's the biblical concept of power and authority. Not for controlling people, but for developing them, for bringing them on on a spiritual journey. Authority in the Bible means being responsible for something, not for controlling it. So much trouble in families, in churches, and even in world politics has been caused because people misuse power. They misinterpret the purpose of power in the same way that Joseph's brothers did. The world will only be safe when it is governed by people who see themselves as servants, who have a sense of responsibility for the people under the care. The last point I wanted to mention is the number of times that we read of Joseph weeping. Seven times in these closing chapters, we read about Joseph weeping. We never hear of him laughing. He was indeed a man of sorrows. Joseph was an intensely emotional young man and sensitive. And because of that, his life was full of sorrow and pain. But it didn't make him bitter. And that reminds me of someone else. I'm sure it's reminding many of you, too, of someone else this morning. The Lord Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It is the Lord's primary objective to reconcile sinners 
to his Father. How often must we have caused the Lord to weep when our conscience has been pricked, but we haven't repented and come back to God? Or when we don't show the love and respect to God our Father, which the Lord Jesus would want to see? And how the Lord weeps over this world as they refuse to listen to the truth about God and about themselves. Well, one day his heart will be full of joy. And we'll be able then to sing with joy that lovely hymn, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's just close in moments prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a magnificent story of how Joseph worked to bring about spiritual change in his brothers and even in his father. We pray, Father, that the lessons from this would touch our lives too in the days and weeks and months to come. And may we become spiritually stronger and closer to you as a result of what the Lord Jesus is doing in our lives. Amen.